Well, good morning, everybody. It's like eight o'clock is an ambitious time for an opening session on a Saturday morning. You guys feeling all right? Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll give you something as we start here that I often teach to our uh, congregation at various times, and that is drowsiness whenever the Word of God is being taught or discussed is a sign of demon possession. Okay, so look right now, everybody, to your right and to your left, and you identify the demon that might be at work here among us. And if you see it, reach over and you grab their forehead with your hand, and as loud as you can yell, you yell, demons out! And I promise you, um, even if you're a Southern Baptist in your theology, the spirit of slumber will depart from that person. So uh, that's how we'll get going. Well, I, um, I'm very, very honored to be here. I'm so, I uh, was so honored and excited when Chuck uh, invited me to be a part of this. Uh, I love the theme of it. This is something that is very important to our church. It is uh, increasingly becoming more important. I would uh, even say that some of the most exciting things that we are experiencing as a church come not from the amount of people um, that we might have on a given weekend, but from seeing God really work um, in the nations that God has brought here into the back door of our church. Uh, we have seen in the last couple of years, some Muslims come to faith in Christ that um, are now training, um, uh, that we are training to lead our refugee work uh, that takes place in the triangle and uh, are now leading others in, uh, in, in, in doing the same. We have dozens of couples from our church, uh, at least two or three dozen um, that, uh, that are living in the South Asian community that is in Durham, uh, living there intentionally to plant churches among, uh, among Hindus. One of the churches that we planted two years ago um, in the Triangle was uh, focused deliberately on planting, on, on reaching um, international students and, and those who have been displaced uh, from around the world. Um, another exciting development uh, that I just found out about a couple weeks ago was um, some of our, uh, we have a Mandarin congregation in our church and a lot of them have come to faith in Christ. And so now they are uh, being prepared to go back to their home country, of course, of China, and to go there as, um, as ambassadors of the gospel. Um, I believe, and I know that this um, audience right here doesn't need to hear this, but I'll say it anyway. Um, I genuinely, with all of my heart, believe that we are in a kairos moment. Uh, kairos is just a Greek word in the Bible that means a divinely orchestrated moment where we see that God has moved things around for the purposes of the gospel. We tend to think that the influence centers are New York City and Hollywood and Washington, D.C., and in London and wherever else in the world you want to point to, but what God shows us through his word is that he arranges the nations, Acts 17, he arranges their allotted periods and boundaries so that they might seek him. And I think what we've seen in this massive kind of migration and some of the political upheaval is yes, there are our national military and so, you know, all these different reasons why this stuff is happening and they've got to be addressed. I, I understand that, but I know that God has a purpose in that too, that goes beyond those things. That sometimes Cyrus has, a, has an intention, sometimes Nebuchadnezzar has an intention, but God has his own intention. Doesn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar's intention is right, just means that God is in it and he's doing something beyond it. If there was something I wish I could convince um, other pastor friends of, and even sometimes people in our congregation of, is that, is that, yes, I understand there are political questions at work here, but I also understand that as a representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have a different set of questions than people who work for the government have. They got their own questions. My question is, what is God doing in this? 
And what is the responsibility of the person that, um, that knows God to the situation that is right there in front of him? Um, there are questions that I don't have to deal with as a member of the church and a follower of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter to me how they got there. It doesn't matter to me if they should be there. They are there. And this is what we do um, in reaching them for the gospel. So that's what I want to talk about with the time that I have um, uh, this morning. Um, I know that you've heard a lot of great things already yesterday. And uh, so what I wanna do is to try to press into a little bit the gospel motivations behind what we do to show really the things that um, every church um, in every part of the country can, uh, can agree on and, and, and focus around. Um, this is a story that you are very familiar with. In fact, I would even suggest one that um, maybe we are too familiar with because uh, we get so familiar with the story that we've missed the the real meaning, the real meaning and the radical implications of it. Um, it's going to give us the what, the why, and the how of engaging the nations that are right in our backyard. Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10 verse 25 is uh, where the story starts. Um, it is the story of the good Samaritan. Verse 25, let me just walk you through it and point out a few things and then uh, we'll walk through those what, why, and how uh, questions. Verse 25, and behold, an expert in the Jewish law stood up to put Jesus to the test. It's a very important context. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a couple of things you ought to notice right off there. First, this is the most important and basic of all religious questions, right? How can I know that I'm going to heaven? Right. The second thing you should note is that, that it's not a completely sincere question. The, uh, Luke makes clear that it's a test for Jesus. Verse 26, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, and Jesus, you can, if you read it in context, you should almost imagine him with a kind of a smile or maybe a slightly sarcastic look and a twinkle in his eye, say to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I almost want to laugh out loud when I read that. That's a big old do, isn't it? Love God supremely. Make God the highest passion in your heart, the one you think about first and most, the undisputed champion of your affections, and love everybody else as much as you love yourself. Care about your neighbor's needs as much as you do your own. Rejoice in their happiness. Worry about their futures. Weep about their sorrows just as much as you would of yours or one of your children. So who is in here this weekend that would want to raise their hand and say, yep, that describes my weekend so far as I have done those things. You see, and that's the dilemma of the commandment. God is commanding something to this guy that by definition cannot be commanded, right? I mean, that's the dilemma of the great commandment. That's kind of the context of this whole parable is, is love God and love each other is um, the kind of thing that it really ought not to be commanded. And if it, you don't do it, then no command can change that. Because if you don't love something, you can't change that by command. I hate mayonnaise. I think mayonnaise is just the most disgusting substance ever produced, and it will not be there in heaven. I, I feel very confident in that. Um, if you put mayonnaise down in front of me and told me to take a scoop of it and put it in my mouth, if you were big enough and strong enough, you could compel me to do it, but your command is not going to make me love it, right? So no command can change love. By you know, contrast, if I already love something, you don't need to command me to do it. You never have to command me to eat a steak or take a nap or kiss my wife or play with my kids. 
Uh, it's just something I do because I love them. The dilemma of the great commandment is we ought to already love God. And if we did love God, we wouldn't need to be commanded to love God and love others. And if we don't love God and love others, then how can any command change that? So God has commanded this man to do something that he shouldn't need to be commanded to do. And therein lies the dilemma and is the context for everything that comes next. Verse 29, but he, the law expert, desiring to justify himself, key word there, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, this guy is feeling the squeeze of the commandment. So he's going to try to limit the scope of the commandment so that he can meet it. Now, keep in mind, this man's primary concern is his own soul. He is looking for something that he can do that will gain for him eternal life. But there are, of course, two problems with that. First, of course, there is nothing he can do. The whole point of Jesus's life is that we couldn't earn our way to heaven. So Jesus came to earth and did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, but living the life we were supposed to live where he loved God and loved others and then died the death that we were condemned to die in our place. And that's the whole point of his life. So he's not gonna unravel that in one conversation. Second problem with that is that if there was something he could do to inherit eternal life, then his primary motivation for doing that thing would not be a love of neighbor, it would be a desire to save himself, which which would be undermining the very commandment Jesus is telling him to obey. Atheists often criticize religious charity because they say religious charity is inherently self-serving. Because when you do something to gain heaven, you're not doing it out of inherent goodness or out of love for anybody, you're doing it really out of love for yourself. Charles Spurgeon had a, a famous story about this where uh, um, uh, supposedly, uh, it's a legend of course, but there's a, um, a poor man who um, he dug up in his backyard the biggest carrot he had ever seen. And so he takes it to, to the king of his country and he says, king, when I saw this carrot, I knew it was a carrot that was only fit for a king because I, I love my king and I honor my king. And so I present to you as a gift, this carrot. Well, the king was genuinely moved by this man's, you know, act of devotion. And he, he said, you know, I happen to own all the property right around your little farm. And so I'm going to give that to you as a gift. And I gave him all this, you know, deed to this property because he was just so moved by this man's gesture. Well, there was another um, nobleman kind of standing in the, the background there and was kind of watching this and thought, wow, if that's what the king would give in response to a carrot, Imagine what he would give in response to a real gift, like a horse. And so he goes out and he gets the um, nicest horse that he's, you know, confined in the, in, in the kingdom and brings it in the next day and says, oh, king, thou art an awesome king. And I want to give you this horse as a gesture of my devotion to you. The king, who was evidently pretty wise, Spurgeon said, uh, kind of saw through the whole ruse. And uh, he said, he said, yesterday, the, the, um, the, the poor man was giving the carrot to me. Today, you're giving the horse to yourself. What Spurgeon was showing is the dilemma of doing something in order to inherit eternal life is not really doing something for anybody, it's doing something back for you. And so that's the whole dilemma here. And that's the context that Jesus is going to tell this story in. And I'll show you at the end why that is so important. Jesus recognizes this guy's question is entirely off base. So he's going to tell a story that subtly shifts the question turning it on its head that shows us both what it means to love our neighbor and how we develop the ability to do it. The reason I take all that time to point this out is that there are a lot of Christians who were kind of asking the same question, what do we have to do when it comes to these questions that are presented to us by, for example, the refugee um, uh, things that we are, are dealing with? It's really the wrong question. The question is, what does a person who's been transformed by the gospel, what do they naturally and inherently want to do? 
If your heart has been moved by the gospel, what is that going to look like? That's the context here. Jesus replied, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. By the way, down from Jerusalem to Jericho was literal. It was a 17 mile stretch that dropped 3,000 feet in elevation. It had all these rocky outcroppings along the side of the road. So it was an ideal place for robbers to hide. This man fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when the priest saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now we tend to be pretty hard on this priest because we have this vision of him, you know, stepping over a bleeding man on his way to the donut shop. But Jesus's audience would have immediately recognized a few things that would make this priest a more sympathetic character. First of all, the Jericho Road was a very dangerous path. Literally in those days, it was referred to as the pass of blood because it was such a natural place, as I pointed out, for robbers to hide. The point was, if you were traveling the Jericho Road, if that was the only place that you could get to where you needed to go, you definitely didn't stop. Second, this priest was returning from Jerusalem where he had purified himself so that he could perform his religious duties. And according to Jewish law, if you touched a man who died after you had been purified, then you had to go back to the temple and purify yourself again, which would have taken that priest an additional seven days. The point is it would have been both dangerous and massively inconvenient for him to stop and help this guy. In fact, I have a hard time seeing how if I'd been the same place, I wouldn't have rationalized it myself the same way. Verse 32, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, Levites were like JV priests. They were to priest what mall cops are to uh, mall security are to cops. And here's the deal. On this road, you can see because of how far it drops, you can see about, they say, three to four miles down it. So this Levite, look, he could have seen the priest pass by if he'd been behind. He could have seen him just go around him. And he probably thought, well, if the priest didn't do it, then it wouldn't be wise for me to do it either. I'm just following my leader. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, and I know that you are, you know that Samaritans were the sworn enemies of the Jews. Jews regarded Samaritans to be unclean because they were the half-Jew, half-Gentile offspring of the Assyrians who had conquered the northern part of Israel and forced the Jews to intermarry, and their offspring were the Samaritans. They were half-bloods, they were mud-bloods for you Harry Potter fans. The Samaritans on their part retaliated by saying that they were actually the true people of God because they lived in the land of Joseph. And they were his descendants. And so they built an alternate altar and said that their altar to God was the true one. And so there was all kinds of racial violence back and forth. There were all kinds of seriously complex political questions. These were not easy things to deal with. And people had very strong opinions on both sides. To a Jew, we learn from the Mishnah that the only good Samaritan was a dead one. Get this, get this. Jews considered just sharing the bread of a Samaritan. In other words, to sit down at a table, have a loaf of bread, and you take a part, and the Samaritan takes a part, equal to eating the flesh of a swine, which was the most defiled animal to them. Samaritans were not the nicest people either. They would often rob caravans of Jews on their way to Jerusalem. They were known um, to desecrate the temple on the eve of the Passover. This is actually kind of funny. Um, they would, uh, on the eve of the Passover, they would launch pigs into the temple by means of a little catapult and splatter them on the thing so that they would defile the temple. Uh, that was just kind of, they just a lot of racial animosity. Verse 34, 
He went to him, the Samaritan, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set on him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out the two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. In other words, he used his own money. And then he even opened up a line of credit. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And this religious expert said, well, of course, the one who showed him mercy. By the way, did you see that? He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. That's how bad he hates the guy. And Jesus said to him, well, then you go and you do likewise. All right, in this story, Jesus is going to show us first what it means to love our neighbor and then why we love our neighbor, which is the part nobody ever seems to get. So I'm going to discuss that first. First the what, then the why. And then at the end, I want to try to give you a few practical insights on how that we do that and how it relates to the questions we have here presented by this conference. So number one, what does it mean to love our neighbor? Let me further divide up the what question. Hopefully this is not too confusing, but I'm going to divide the what up into the who, when, and the how much. Okay? So what, who, when, and how much. First one, who? Who is it that we are supposed to love? And the answer that the story gives is anyone that we see in need for any reason under any circumstance. The Samaritan and the Jew could not have had less in common. In order to meet the need, the Samaritan had to overcome political questions and cross an incredible social barrier. It is natural for us to help those who are like us and those with whom we identify. But Jesus taught that we are to help those, especially those with whom we have little in common, even those who might have wronged us, even those who might have historically been opposed to us, because that is the distinctive of the gospel. That could mean, of course, the person in your personal life that you barely know. It means those on the other side of the political aisle from you. It means those who feel you feel are suffering because of mistakes that they or their family have made. It means the boss at work who have taken advantage of you. It means Muslims, feeling, Muslims fleeing from Aleppo or the illegal immigrant who broke the law to get here. You always point out when I say this, and I'll go back to what I said at the beginning, that's not a statement on what the government ought to do. The government has its own set of questions, and I pray that God gives our government leaders wisdom. They have a different set of questions than I have. I'm talking about for me as a representative of the church, I know what I'm supposed to do. I had a guy who um, came to our church, and I won't give you his name, um, but because he was uh, just a very influential guy in the North Carolina government, who's, uh, um, and he had a lot of influence in the refugee question. And um, his son got, came to faith in Christ at our church, and he started to come with him, and God really started to get a hold of his heart. And uh, I didn't, it wasn't this um, passage, but it was a similar passage, and he just I was talking about the dignity of people and what we have to do, and he um, asked if he could have some time, and he just sat me down and said, I'm trying to figure out how to apply this. What do I do? And so we talked through what that was, but I told him, I was like, you know, at the end of the day, I as a pastor, I can't tell you what as a government official you are exactly supposed to do here because you got a different set of questions than I have. And I'll tell you how to think Christianly about this, but you're thinking about questions of security, you're thinking about all these other things, and you got to weigh that out. That's your burden. And I'm praying for you, and I hope as a believer that you will, will pursue these things biblically. But I, as a representative of the church, I got a totally different set of questions. And it is less relevant to me how the situation came about than that. It is right here in front of me. And this passage tells me specifically what I am supposed to do. It's anybody in need, regardless of who they are, or how they got there, which leads me to the second part of this, um, the second part of the what. When? 
When do we help? And the answer is whenever you see the need. Christians come up with all kinds of excuses for why they don't need to help somebody in need. They'll say things like, well, I don't mind helping people who are truly victims of injustice, but those people over there, well, they don't really deserve our help. Their suffering is their own fault. Y'all get this, the Samaritan would have had plenty of reasons to believe this man deserved his suffering. This, I mean, this man was a Jew. As we've seen, Jews were cruel to Samaritans. They were downright racist. I mean, in their society, they thoroughly enjoyed Jewish privilege. And the Samaritan might have thought, you know, this is what happens. This is what happens when you foster a culture of racial superiority. This guy is just getting what he deserved. Yet the Samaritan reached out to this Jew in mercy. In the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards listed out the most common excuses that Christian people give for not helping others in need in a little book he wrote called The Duty of Charity. It is amazing when you go back to this little book how relevant the answers, he gives three reasons why we don't help, how relevant they still are. He says excuse number one that Christians in his day gave is we only help people when they are in dire need. Edward's answer to that was, that violates the principle of loving our neighbor as ourselves because we come to our own, na- own aid long before the situation is dire. Isn't that right? I'm not waiting until I'm about to die before I help myself. I help myself whenever I'm just inconvenient or uh, uncomfortable. Excuse number two, he says, they brought on their own trouble on themselves. They brought on their trouble themselves onto themselves. That's the excuse that we use to, to kind of get out of, of helping those in need. Edward's answer but Christ relieved the misery that you brought on yourself. Should we not love others as Christ loved us? But let me ask you to think about something. Liberals and conservatives have different explanations for why the poor are poor. For example, why, for example, kids in poorer schools continue to struggle. Those who are on the left, let's just call them, you know, for lack of better terms, let's say the, the left side, the liberal side say, well, it's systemic evil, it's racism. The system is rigged to support those in power. And a conservative might say, well, yeah, but at the end of the day, it's their family's fault. Their family never taught them right from wrong or personal responsibility or, or, or the family never read to them at night or pushed them to succeed. Even worse, they taught them to hate or resent those that succeeded. They're gonna have different reasons for why the problem continues, but both liberals and conservatives agree on one thing. It's not entirely the kid's fault. Now I think of it like this, the fact that my sister and I were born into a family that loved us and my parents did read to me every night and taught me that if I applied myself, I could succeed. The fact that I've grown up in the society I've grown up with the privileges I've grown up with, that was due to nothing on my part. It was a gift of grace. And the kid that's born into a bad family didn't ask to be born there. Therefore, we ought to do what we can to help them and not isolate ourselves from them. That doesn't mean that we, shouldn't, we should be careless in how we help. It just means that I've got a responsibility because of the grace that I have received when I didn't deserve it to help others who are in situations whether they deserve to be there or not. That's really an irrelevant question for me. Proverbs 3.27, do not withhold good from your neighbor when it, is, when it is in your power to act. In other words, if you have the opportunity to act, you have the responsibility to act. Third question as a part of the what is how much? How much? And the answer is in a way that takes their burden onto yourself. In order to help, the Samaritan put himself at great personal risk, then used his own money and even opened up a line of credit. What Jesus is showing is he extended himself in at least three ways that went far beyond what we would think was 
required, which leads me to the third excuse that Edwards gave, identified. Edwards identified that Christian people use to excuse themselves from engaging in suffering. And that is, they say, well, I can't really afford to help the man in need. Edwards answers, Galatians 6, 2, tells us to bear one another's burdens, which means that we give and get involved, listen, to a point that their burden becomes our burden. You give to the point and you get involved to the point that you are personally encumbered and burdened and endangered by the danger and encumbrance that they feel. That's what you see in this story. This man, the Samaritan, literally takes on this guy's burden of danger and poverty onto himself. I often tell our congregation there's no magic number or magic formula when we determine how much to give or how much to get involved. But the one thing that we can be sure of is that when we're following Jesus, our giving and our serving will bring personal burden from somebody else onto ourselves. So I C.S. Lewis said that the only safe rule, if you're gonna come up with a rule when it comes to giving and serving, the only safe rule that you could come up with is that you ought to give more than you think you can spare. He said, because only then are you giving in a level of sacrifice or, or faith giving until it pains you. Many of us give. In fact, comparatively, we might give quite a lot, but we do it at no personal cost to ourselves where the burden of somebody else actually comes on us. We give out of the excess, but not in a way that absorbs their burden into ourselves. Our giving should be to a level that we experience some of the difficulty of those in need because of the amount that we give and the amount that we serve. Brothers and sisters, let me just stop here for a second and tell you this is the core of what it means to follow Jesus. Let me say this, believers in churches like ours face a particular temptation like this priest and Levite where our service is so much about religious duties reading the Bible, volunteering, small group, going on mission trips. But when you look at our lives, there is very little of actually giving away of ourselves and taking on burden. Jesus referred to this in Matthew 23, 23, when he talked to another group of very religious, zealous people in his day, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. By the way, that means you're going through their spice rack and tithing. And that's varsity. That's never happened in our church where I just, you know, pass the offering plate and there's like, you know, people's spices that are now tied in there. But these people were serious. Jesus didn't criticize it. He said, that's great. I'm glad you do that. But even though you're doing that and you ought to be doing that, you still, you neglect mercy and faithfulness. You ought to have done one without neglecting the others. The weightiest part of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to evaluate your walk with Jesus, then they evaluate it this way, how much of your resources and your time are poured out for others. In, in movements like ours, we can studiously emphasize the marginal while neglecting the essential, which is we're characterized by these set of things. This is what an evangelical looks like while somehow being blind to this set of things, which are the weightiest parts of the law. And there is no more better application of the law than loving those around us who are in need, regardless of who they are, how they got there. Now, maybe even more importantly, that was the what. Let's talk about the why. The why we love our neighbors. This is where the man, where Jesus turns a religious man's question on its head. If you remember, this question started with the law expert asking what a person could do to inherit eternal life. 
But if you know anything about the life and teaching of Jesus, you know, I pointed out that the whole point of his coming was because we could not save ourselves, therefore he came to save us, which is why Jesus puts a really interesting twist into the story when you think about it. Here's a question. Let's ask you to pretend you never heard this story. Let me ask you a question I want you to consider. Why have a Samaritan be the hero? Why not tell the story in a way where the lawyer, the Jewish expert, could identify with the person who offered the help? Why not have the person on the side of the road who was hurt? Why not have them be a Samaritan and then have three different Jews come by and one good Jew stop to help and then Jesus say, so be like the good Jew? Why would he make the person who was the hero, why would he make the hero a Samaritan? Jesus used a character who who could not have been more different from the guy asking the question. And here is why. What if, listen, what if the person that we are most supposed to identify with in the story is not the priest, not the Levite, not even the good Samaritan? What if instead we are supposed to hear this story and primarily identify as the guy who is bleeding on the side of the road? What if somebody who had every reason to hate us and be our enemy, somebody very unlike us, had chosen to put himself into danger to help us? What if the really good Samaritan in the story, what if the really good Samaritan is Jesus who put himself into the path of danger and took upon himself our suffering that we had caused by ourselves? and poured out his own resources to save us, what if that's the real meaning of the story? You see, Jesus is asking the man, what if you were bleeding to death on the side of the road and your only hope was an act of free grace from an enemy that you who did not owe you anything? If that's really what happened, if one of your enemies came and saved you, after you've been rescued like that, what would your life look like in response? You see, Jesus is not giving the lawyer a new rule as much as he is making him aware of a new reality. If we understand Jesus's life, we are the ones who have been saved by radical grace by a God who had every right to regard himself as our enemy. And when we embrace that, we will become givers of radical grace. The word that Jesus used for what the Samaritan felt is one of, I think it's one of Jesus's favorite words to use. It's one of my favorite Greek words. Um, he said he felt compassion. In Greek, um, it's the word splagma. Splagma is what an English teacher would call onomatopoeia. You know, onomatopoeia, where a word sounds like what it is. Um, onomat- splagma means a compassion or pity that arises from down in your gut, which is why, um, which is why it, it sounds like, if you say, splagma, it sounds like you're vomiting. It's kind of fun. You want to say it? Say, it, say, say splagma. Splagma. That's how I say it. Splagma. It's just, it's like, I, I, it's what I feel when one of my kids is in pain. I don't think, well, what's a good parent got to feel right here? Okay, I'm a good parent, so I'm going to feel it. No, I just, I see one of my kids in pain and I have this involuntary reaction that says, if I could take your pain, I would do it. It's splagma. The word that Jesus used for what this Samaritan felt is what Jesus said he felt for us when we we're in sin and we were doomed and we deserved it. And Jesus said, I can't sit by, I've got to get involved. God is not after rule followers. And this conference is not about establishing, if it's going to succeed, it's not about establishing a new rule for all churches. What God is after is a church that responds like he responds. 
and that cannot, listen, be produced by the commands of the law. And we cannot at a conference like this one say, this is what all good evangelical churches and all good Southern Baptist churches do. What we have to be is people who are gospel saturated to where this stuff becomes instinctive to us. God is not just after obedience, he's after a whole new kind of obedience. An obedience that's not produced by the commands of the law. And that kind of obedience is only experienced by a radical experience or radical um, uh, encounter with grace. It should be ultimately, listen, these are not church ministry problems or gospel problems. And I have to think that if we were really gospel people, I mean, no offense, Chuck, I don't think we'd need a conference like this one. I think it would already be happening. So you look at the landscape and you say, what does the gospel require? Of course, of course, I'm going to see this person and I'm going to see them displaced and I'm going to see them in need. And of course, I'm going to go to them. We love, Jesus says, because, because that makes us good Christians, because it's the, the best and most strategic thing to do. No, we love because he first loved us. The love of God for us produces love for God in us. You've heard of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus taught that. Paul upgrades it based on reflections on Jesus' life. He didn't use this term, but I'll, I'll use it. He upgrades it to the platinum rule. Do unto others as Jesus has done unto you. That's your standard, Ephesians 4.32. Forgive as Christ forgave. 2 Corinthians 8.9. Remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Those who have experienced the gospel develop an uncontrollable impulse to be generous and insane abilities to forgive. We love our neighbor not in order to gain eternal life, but because we've been given eternal life by a Savior who not only risked his life to save us, but offered up freely to do so. Now, let me give you finally here a few practical considerations for how we do it, how we love our neighbors. Two things this story shows us that we need. First, our churches are going to have to have courage in this. Like I've tried to show you, fear was one of the primary deterrents to the priest and the Levite engaging. When they weren't stingy, they were just afraid. To stop and help would have put them at risk. It's one of the primary factors keeping us and our churches from loving our neighbors and loving the nations that are all around us. We ask, what is going to be the effect on our lives if I get involved? What will be the effect on kids if we open up our lives and homes to people with problems? You know, you probably know people who have a very tight circle of friends and they're engaged in ministry, but they only let people into that circle who are safe or bring a benefit to them and their family. Not only does that mentality cut you off from the mission of God, ultimately, it is death to the church. Last fall, our staff read a book um, uh, together. It was called Next Door As It Is In Heaven. And throughout the book, the author talks about how fear keeps so many of us from living like Jesus and applying this parable. The author, he's um, talking more about fostering, but I'll, I'll show you how it applies here. But he said that as a typical American, he bought into the notion, for example, that my home was my castle. It was my personal space that ought not to be intruded upon. While we had people in our home on a regular basis, it was almost always at our convenience. Then I realized, he said, that that's because I assumed the greatest need of my young family was safety. But the more I read the New Testament, I learned that my family's greatest need was the experience of loving and serving like Jesus loved and served. He talks specifically about the call of God in their lives to foster. And he said, we were always afraid of the effect of fostering, the effect it would have on our family. 
And those are legitimate questions. He says, now, now, and here was the unexpected part. In fact, I think I'll put it up here for you. Providing care for these children is the single best thing we've ever done for our own kids. We've learned how God uses hospitality to shape and form us. This is a fascinating aspect of kingdom living. As you bestow a blessing for the benefit of others, you realize that you too are a recipient of God's grace. And that is the greatest gift that I could give to my children is to teach them what grace living was. He says, the real question therefore is not how dangerous is that stranger? The real question is how dangerous will I become if I do am not more open and don't take in the stranger? Might I turn me and my children and my church into a Pharisee? To love takes courage. You put yourself in danger and inconvenience, just like Jesus did. Our people who are involved in particularly refugee work in the triangle here have some interesting experiences. One um, told me the other day, she said, I'm not making this up. She said, I, um, we've gotten really involved in our neighborhood with an Afghan um, uh, refugee, a refugee from Afghanistan who um, had just connections to the, the, the Taliban. He said, and, and, and he walked over the other day, knocked on the door and asked if he could borrow a pressure cooker. She said, she said, yeah, what, what do you need it for? And he says, well, it cooks your meat very fast. It's very powerful. It, it, it's very explosive, like a bomb. That's what he said to her. And, he, and she was like, so she goes and gets the pressure cooker. And she just said, that's not what you want to hear from the man in the Taliban family whose home you are now, you know, frequently in with your three little toddlers. Now, I mean, it turns out the man had no bad intentions. He was just trying to explain to her what he needed, but that was where he went. One family had a refugee introduce themselves by saying, and I quote, they told me this. They said, quote, um, I'm very fundamental in my Islamic faith, but not quite as serious as ISIS. I'm like, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> my own family, we've, we've had Burmese um, uh, refugees from Myanmar in our house, lived there for a week. And I'm just gonna tell you, like most aspects of ministry, um, it doesn't look the way that you think it's going to look when you originally sign up for it, right? You just have this beautiful image and it's just going to be awesome. And it's like the sound of music and just, you know, dancing through the fields. And all of a sudden you, you get them in there at 930 at night and they're going to be there for a week. And you sit down and realize I don't speak a word of Burmese and they don't speak a word of English. And it's just sort of awkward for a few minutes. Is your point at stuff and you're trying to, you explain bathroom and uh, the, the, this guy crawls up on top of the toilet, um, you know, like to stand there. And I'm like, not exactly squatty potty. I'm not really sure what term you use, but you're trying to show them all that. It's, it's, there are difficulties, but what you find is that the glories and the worth that it gives to the kingdom of God for our family and for the mission of God are something we would never trade in a million years. It takes courage, it takes courage, it takes inconvenience, but it is something that is profoundly worth it, not only in the kingdom, yes, in the kingdom, but also even, I would say, as followers of Jesus, the most dangerous thing we can do is to only reach those who are like us. Here's a second thing that we have to emphasize to our people. We've gotta have margin. The authors of this book I refer to, Next Door as It Is in Heaven, say that the second biggest obstacle to loving our neighbor is simply lacking any room in our lives to actually get involved in the lives of others. Here's what they say, the next time you read the story of the Good Samaritan, consider it from the perspective of margin. The priests and the Levites had all these excuses for why they're too busy to get involved. They were about to be engaged, he said, in doing God's work and were perhaps in a hurry to remain faithful to God's work. They saw the wounded man as a distraction from what they were supposed to do for God. Maybe their schedules were so full they simply couldn't accommodate a wounded person on the way. 
There's a great biblical teaching on this that I I thought we ought to make a bigger deal out of in our churches, but Leviticus 19, where God is giving the instructions to Israel, and he starts talking about the foreigner, and he starts talking about the sojourner and the guest and all this, and then he starts to give something that almost seems random. He's like, by the way, when you clean, when when you harvest your fields, don't do the corners. And anything you drop when you're carrying it, just leave it on the ground. Because that's going to be for the the sojourner. That's going to be for the guest. What he's talking about is margin. Don't make every second count. Because if you try to make every second and every dollar count, you're not going to be able to respond to the people that I put in front of you. So you've got to create margin in your time. You've got to create margin in your budget. Church leaders have to create margin in their mission budget so that we can respond to the things that God does and leave part of it ungleaned. Time, money. Here's a simple question we ought to ask. Do you have time to engage with people? The author, give you one quick example on this. He talks about trying to relearn the ancient art of strolling. A lot of our people have people in these categories living in the neighborhood, but we don't know our neighbors. And he says, you know, one of the practical things they did is just learn the ancient art of strolling where we now take lots of walks in our neighborhoods. We make sure we're not in a hurry. We're not speed walking. We don't have, you know, uh, our, our, our iPods or if we're not listening to things, we stop often, we observe, we talk, we listen, we pray for families, we pray for houses we don't know, we engage with those in our neighborhood that we consider to be strangers and we encounter them along the way. The core ministry of every church, I believe, is embodied in this parable. And it is the heart behind this conference. Churches ought not to be groups of people who gather each weekend that just sit through a religious show, but we ought to mobilize ourselves to take God's love into the community. This is why the church exists. One of the things we do at the end of every service um, at the Summit Church is we'll stand everybody up and one of our pastors gets up and he blesses everybody and commissions them with the words, you are sent. And it's just to remind people that living out the mission of God means that all around us there are roads and streets with people that are in need and it is our responsibility to to help them. A lot of times I feel like we have churches are like... um, I've heard it described like a football huddle. You know, if imagine you're watching a football game and, and uh, guys get, you know, they're in the middle and they, they kind of, you know, the quarterback calls a play and imagine all the guys are, you know, clap their hands and then run back over and sit on the bench. And they wait for a few minutes, they come back out and they're like, call us another play. You're the best play caller I've ever heard. I listen to you on, you know, I listen to you at night. I listen to you when I'm driving around. I love to hear you call the play. And they call the play and run back and they sit down. After this happens, you know, four or five times, by the way, in this analogy, that would make the worship team the cheerleaders just uh, for whatever it's worth. But, um, you know, the, uh, uh, at some point you're watching the football game and you're like, fellas, the point is not calling the play. It doesn't matter if your quarterback is an awesome play caller. The point is to run the play. At some point, you got to quit listening to the play and you got to start running the play. At some point, churches have to be less identified with how many people they seat on Sunday and how many they send into the community Monday through Saturday. As we say, it's sending capacity, not seating capacity, that's the measure of health for any church. There are 40 miracles that take place in the book of Acts. 40. Listen to this. 39 of the 40 happen outside of the church. I tell our people that means that 140th of the power of God is what I have access to because I work inside the church. I know that's not great hermeneutics, but I think you understand the point. 
The point is that the majority of what God, the Spirit of God wants to do, He doesn't want to do through me in the pulpit. He wants to do through them when they're talking with the Afghan Taliban refugee in the house next door. That's where he, God really wants to show these miraculous things of power. Why is it? Why is it that when the people of the Summit Church talk about an experience of the power of God, almost all of them will point to one of my sermons or an experience they had in worship? Y'all praise God for powerful preaching and praise God for anointed worship, but that is not the place that God wants to manifest his power in the world. The power of God is manifest through his people in the community and that's what we are called to do. This is a Kairos moment. God has told us very clearly, Acts 17, he arranges the allotted periods and the boundaries for the purpose of the gospel, that the king's heart is like a river in the hands of the Lord. He churns it whatever way that he chooses. You know, what we see in the early church is that the early church didn't get this. Jesus had very clearly told them in Acts 1-8, his plan to get the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 1 through 7, they're all still hanging out in Jerusalem, singing Kumbaya and having a great time. A bunch of Jews are getting saved, and it's like, the, it's probably the golden age for them in terms of the church, except for people getting stoned. But, you know, it's like, it was a, it was a sweet time. And God says, that's not my intention. And he, Acts 8, scattered them. And those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Is it that hard for us to bridge the gap into our day and say, maybe God just did it in a slightly different way? Instead of scattering the church, he actually scattered the nations and brought the nations right here to us and said, I did that also for the purpose so that you could preach the word. Our church is big in international missions. I hope yours is too, but we don't want to be any more passionate about international missions than we are about reaching the people that are right here in our own community with the gospel. This is a Kairos moment. It is clearly what God is doing. I don't see how anybody could deny that. Anybody could not see that. And it means that the, the, the need of the church in this moment is to stand up where this good Samaritan stood up, where Jesus stood up and just say, God, we're here. Use us to reach the nations. And I think we're going to see some of the most exciting works of God happen, just like the early church did. We're going to see some of the most exciting works of God happen to those who are on the front lines of what God is doing. There's no question God's doing it. So when I try to motivate our people to this, I tell them a little, you know, a little proverbial, uh, the story about the little woodpecker, you know, who's just tapping away at the telephone pole, not doing anything, you know, know, not making any difference. All of a sudden lightning strikes the telephone pole, splits the telephone pole too. And the woodpecker's like, you kind of, you know, backs up, he's looking at this telephone pole that's now split in two, and he flies off and goes and gets several of his buddies and brings them back and is like, there she is, boys. Look at what I did, you know? And I'm like, that's going to be you. <laughs> you're in a place where you know lightning is about to strike. And you're just tapping away, and you're going to look at what you're doing and how you're taking meals and how you're bringing people in your house. And you're like, it's not making any difference at all. But that's because you're only thinking about what the woodpecker is doing and not about the lightning bolt that God has promised to send and what's going to happen is all of a sudden it's going to happen and you're going to kind of back up and you're going to say, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, I knew he would do it. Because this is what his word told us he was going to do. He was going to rearrange the nations for the purpose of the gospel and it was hard for us to get into Afghanistan. So he brought Afghanistan to us. And it was hard for us to keep up with just the growth in China. So he created, for, for us, he created universities with programs that brought the best and the brightest of the Chinese nation right here into our backyard. 
And he brought Hindus and he brought people from all over and he brought fleeing refugees and he brought people from South America and he brought them here and he said, I brought them here so that you could preach the gospel to them and so that my lightning strike could do things among them that would just blow your mind. I want to be on the front lines. I don't want to be my ministry to be explained by how I can knock down a telephone pole. I want the lightning strike of God's power. And the only way to get it is to go where God is doing his most strategic work. And I just don't see how we could say that this is not one of the most significant things that God is doing in our generation. So if you want the lightning strike of God's power, just be where he said it's going to be. And then it'll be an awesome ride. It'll be costly. It'll be painful, but it'll be fantastic. Once we bow our heads, let me pray. God, I pray that you would help. This is a work through these things. I help the Summit Church to be a gospel-saturated people. Help the churches represented at this conference to be people infused and filled with the gospel in ways that transform their neighborhoods and the nations. Be with my friend Bryant Wright as he comes here in just a few minutes and he, God takes us through what the scriptures say about our responsibility to um, the immigrant, the guest, the sojourner. I pray that you would uh, fill him with the spirit and, and, and God enliven our hearts and our imaginations through this. Lord Jesus, do your work here. Send your church, send forth laborers into your harvest. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.